All righty then. Week six. Halfway through. That's hard to believe for me. But we are halfway through. And we uh, have no better topic than to talk about the church of Jesus Christ that Christ gave his life for. Calls it there in Acts 20, the, the, the organization, the institution that he purchased with his own blood. So worthy of our time, worthy of our efforts. So let's dive into it right after a word of prayer. Let's pray together, please. God, we do thank you very much for the opportunity that we have to study, to look through your word, to think through systematically all that your word says about the New Testament church, about what it is, how it's to function. And as we uh, kind of wrap up a few weeks now of thinking about the role of the church in the Christian life, I pray that it would be a helpful uh, summation of many things that I know have been taught in the past and have been thought about, but to bring them together in this context, I pray would be helpful, it would be affirming, it would establish us, and as I so often pray, that those in our church would not be driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine, but we would be rooted and established in the truth. Uh, We would be, as John 17 says, uh, sanctified in the truth. So set us apart in the truth, let us think biblically, let us think uh, your thoughts after you, and let us grow in our knowledge of the church tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to talk about training a little bit, training specifically for ministry. I need you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look specifically at verses 7 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But grace, uh, wow, stop there with that word. Um, This word will come up in the first half of our discussion a lot. It's something we toss around its definition as it relates to a form of it, as it relates to ministry. But we need to understand perhaps the breadth of this word. We'll look at it a little closer when we look at 1 Corinthians 12, but we often don't give this word all the, uh, the breadth that it, it has in Scripture. Look at how it's used in this sentence. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word gift there you could circle and the word grace you could circle because they're the same word, the kara root, uh, C-H. Uh, A-R-A, Kara. We, we often, I mean, we miss that in English here, of course, but the idea of gift is the idea of grace. Grace is to dispense or to give something, to favor or, or, or bestow you with something that, uh, that, is, uh, that is unearned, that's not purchased. It's a, it's a gift. It's grace. And the Bible here, as we'll see, is talking about the grace that is dispensed to the church so that the church can do what it's called to do. And he, he's getting down to the specifics of each individual person. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, now he quotes this Old Testament text, when he ascended on high, he led a host captive and he gave gifts to men. The idea of God, in this case, Christ in particular, granting his church what is needed, this grace, this favor, this unearned uh, benefit bestowed upon the church. In saying, verse 9, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Here's a poetic way to talk about his death, burial. And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. There's so much there. Much of Colossians 1 is repeated in this little phrase, poetically speaking. He died, buried, ascended, resurrected, ascended in the actual ascension of Christ. Now he has all authority granted to him. We've talked about that in our Christology series. He now, or even in the first week of our big assignment series, he now has all authority. He uh, is the one who fills all things as it's put poetically in verse 10. And he gave, now back to the giving of gifts. Now, even this, when we speak of gifts, uh, 
here we're not talking about an endowment or an ability to do something. Here we're talking about the kinds of people that the church is granted so that it can do what it's called to do. And he lists four. He says in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. That looks like five, but it's really four because of the way that the uh, articles are and the the grammar of this is laid out. You could put, as some of you in circles that you run in know, you could put a hyphen between the word shepherd and teacher. Poimen, the word shepherd, is also translated in most translations, uh, pastor. That's what it means. It sounds like pasture because out in the pasture, uh, the shepherd looked after the flock. Pastoring is the word shepherd. And in this case, he gave some that were shepherds, and the shepherd was to, at least in this picture, to feed, and that is to teach in this regard, that the shepherd teacher. So we got apostles, prophets, evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. I thought it would be worth our time to put a little chart here, which is very basic, but sometimes helpful. It needs to be ingrained in our thinking whenever we hear these words, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Now, look at the matrix I created here. Uh, Ministries associated with establishing churches. That's the first column. Second column, ministries associated with sustaining churches. That's That's the second column. The first row is without a written New Testament, without a codified new covenant teaching from Christ and the apostles, and the bottom row with a written New Testament, okay? Now, let's fill this in real quick. The apostles, and I put foundational under this because in Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, in, in uh, Philippians 1.21, we've got this statement that the, the, the apostles are foundational to the church. They are, the church is going to be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So we know this is a, a, a one-term, one-generation one kind of thing, foundational. Now, now look at how we set it in the matrix. The apostles founded churches. They established churches. They went out into villages, into places, and they established those churches and said, now you've read the Old Testament. You've read all about the coming Messiah. You've read about the suffering servant. You've read about the exalted king, the the son of David. I'm going to tell you who that was. It was the one that lived in, in, in Nazareth and the one that was born in Bethlehem. And it's the one who did ministry in Jerusalem. They came with the authority of Christ to establish churches, but they didn't have New Testament written revelation. We didn't have the 27 books of the New Testament. So they were there on their authority granted to them by Christ. The word apostles, which if you don't know, you need to put it somewhere in this, in this chart, means simply to be sent. But when we see the word apostolo, which is the verb I send, uh, which is transliterated to apostle, we need to know there's a capital A version of that, a technical use of that, and, and a small a use of that. A lot of times in the Bible, we'll talk about someone is sent Uh, from somebody else, and they're called a a sent person, a sent one. And a lot of times our Bibles don't even translate it apostle because clearly we're not talking about that category of people that took the message of Christ without a Bible in hand to establish the church. But when we see it that way in our thinking, although it's not capitalized, we like to think of it in terms of of a capital A, the apostles. The Bible says there are 12 foundations in the New Jerusalem, and each foundation stone is going to have a name of one of the 12 apostles. There are 12 of these, right? You can debate who the 12th is. Is it Judas? Is it Paul? Different sermon. But we've got only 12. They're foundational according uh, to the Bible. Uh, and, and what we need to understand, I'm, I got to go uh, here look in, in my Bible real quick. Give me a second. How are we doing out there? All right. I misquoted something here I, I need to correct. I said Philippians 121. You knew that was wrong. Should have shouted at me at that point. Uh, 
We are talking about Ephesians 2, um, 20. Thank you. You didn't say it. I don't think you said it. If you said it, you whispered it. I didn't hear it. Ephesians 2, 20. And, and I'll read it for you. Uh, being built, of, well, I should read verse 19. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The picture of a building being built, continually built until Christ comes back. The foundation is the apostles and prophets. The cornerstone, which is the center of it all, is Christ himself. Apostles, capital A, we like to say, I like to say, and that just means it's technical use, 12 of them. And they are the ones that established churches as they went out, sent with the authority of Christ. And according to Scripture, they had this ability in in passages like Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. They had the ability to do the kinds of miracles that Christ did to establish their authority. you got two people coming into town. Uh, One of them says Christ from Nazareth, uh, born in Bethlehem, was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic promises. And another guy says, no, that's not it. I don't think that's it. One can do miraculous gifts. The other one can't. Uh, we go with the guy who can do the miraculous gifts. And we believe his message because they were endowed, uh, as it says there. Oh, man, the passages are muddy in my mind. I, I gave you Hebrews 2, but let me give you another one real quick. Hard day. I got Luke around the corner. That worked hard on my brain today. How was dinner tonight? Was it all right? Glad to hear that. The Bible's a big book. It is. Second Corinthians 12, 12 is the one I was groping for in my mind. The signs of the true apostles were, were performed among you uh, with patience. That is, signs, wonders, and mighty works. Uh, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. These guys came in, established churches with the authority of Christ, with the moniker, the, the imprimatur, if you will, of Christ, and that is the ability to suspend natural law and to do miraculous events. Apostles, foundational. The next one here, ministry associated with sustaining the churches, were the prophets. We read about this in 1 Corinthians, for instance. You need someone to teach the church that has now been established, and everybody has faith in the fact that Christ is the Messiah. They put their trust in him. They study their Old Testaments. They see all the parallels to the story of Christ. They get it. They believe it. But someone needs to stand up and teach them every weekend. And, and, and those were called the prophets. They were like the Old Testament prophets, Nehemiah, Ezekiel, Nahum. You choose one. They're out there speaking with the authority of God. And those are the prophets that sustain these churches, but they don't have a written New Testament. They simply uh, get up and teach with the authority that is, I guess if you want to say, delegated even further from Christ through the apostles to sustain those churches. Now, we see some, something else that parallels the other two. Now, remember um, Ephesians 2.20. The church was founded on the apostles and prophets. If now we have those apostles codify the revelation from Christ in writing, now we have a New Testament uh, text and truth now that has been passed on from the apostles. Now we send people out to plant churches, and, and they're called, like Timothy was, an evangelist. They're the people who can pass on the good news of Christ. It is coming now through the codified and written propositional truths that were given to the apostles, and they now can go anywhere with a Bible in hand, and they can establish churches. They don't have the uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 ability to do miraculous signs and wonders, but they are the evangelists who were the authority of the written word, much like the Old Testament that was written surrounded by miraculous events. They can go with the authority of the written text, and they can plant churches. And they do. 
Matter of fact, if you want to put somewhere in there in that box, you might want to put church planters because that's really what we're talking about here. People who go with the written scriptures, New Testament scriptures, and they plant churches. How long does that go on? Well, forever until Christ comes back, at least. We have church planting going on. How long do the apostles do their work? One generation, only 12 of them. They had some emissaries, they had some protégés, they had some understudies, they had prophets that, that were there in the pulpit sustaining those churches they founded. But once the apostles put their work in writing, now the evangelists will continue to plant churches till Christ comes back. Now, the third one, which is hyphenated uh, often, and some of you are familiar with people calling themselves pastor teachers. I guess you can use that if you'd like, because that's you know obviously coming from this text. Uh, but we assume one with the other. The main teacher in the church is usually the pastor in, in the church. Uh, the main the caregiver, at least in the church, uh, obviously is doing mo- most of that caregiving through his teaching. So pastor teacher in this text, they both go together. We have them both here, Poiman and Didaskalos, both of these, uh, the the, the, the caring and the feeding. They then do what the prophets did with the church, but they're not sitting around uh, calling themselves prophets. The only way they could call themselves prophets, if you wanted to call yourself a prophet, would be, uh, you know, in a non-technical sense, in their reiterating the truth of the apostles, what was put down in New Testament scripture. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Now, we define evangelists as someone who rents out a stadium and, and shares the gospel. That's not biblical uh, evangelism. Nothing wrong with it. It is biblical you know, good news telling, nothing wrong with that. But the real focus here is, is those that went out and planted churches. Uh, so we have church planters and we have pastor teachers, right? Apostles and prophets uh, we no longer uh, have as an ongoing ministry of the church. Okay, all that said, clarified, I trust, as clear as, as mud. Now, look at our text, verse 11. He gave the apostles the prophets, which Ephesians 2.20 said were foundational, and the evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Uh, that's one office there. He gave those. Now, you could say that we're talking about gifting. Yeah, he gave these people to the church to do something, verse 12. To equip, there's the purpose of these people, the saints for the work of ministry. Jot this down, if you would. Number one, uh, we need to see pastors, the pastor teachers, as coaches. Or even if you want to say, oh, I'm in a church plant. Great. The church planter is the coach. And, and, and his team of, of shepherds, they are the coaches. They're supposed to equip you, prepare you, get you ready, train you, if you will, that's the point here, to do the work of the ministry, okay? Diakona, the, the ministry, diakona. Uh, diakona sounds like another word we find in the Bible that's transliterated and not translated, and that's the word what? Deacon, okay? Deacon simply means ministry. Who are they equipping? The saints. So here's the picture of training in the church. The pastors obviously are feeding the flock, but their purpose is to make sure that the congregants, the saints, are prepared or equipped or trained to do the work of ministry. Now that's a problem because in our thinking, we think of people who are the pastors as the ministers. I mean, that's how we even define the word. They're the minister. But in reality, the Bible teaches that the, the, the pastors are not the ministers. The pastors are the equippers, the trainers, and those who sit under the leadership of, of, of the pastors are the ones who are the, the ministers. They're the ones that are required to do the work of ministry. Uh, they're the ones that are called to do the work of serving the church. Now, what is that? Well, we've talked about that in the big assignment. It's to reach people for Christ, and it's to help people obey Christ, and all the ancillary sub-points we could put on that to care for people 
people, you know, to, to, to encourage people, to rebuke people. All of those things that go on in the church uh, are done by the congregants, you see. We'll get to some implications that I'm dying to throw out there right now. But if we get that in our minds so far in this text, that's helpful. Now, look at all the good things that come from pastors being coaches and, and saints or congregants doing the work of ministry. Look, keep reading. For the building up of the body of Christ. The body gets built up, strong, cared for, until we all attain to unity of the faith. Now people run in small groups, doing discipleship. I mean, to use some of our terms here in our church, the the church keeps growing and the people keep getting more mature. They keep understanding the faith, the doctrine of the church. They become unified in that. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, they grow in their knowledge of Christ to mature manhood, the body itself. The church becomes a more mature organization to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. A lot of poetry, if you will, uh, in this. A lot of big verbiage in this particular passage. There's a statement, just a, a flowery way to say that the church becomes very uh, mature and, and established and firm so that, here's our text, a prayer I often pray for you, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By, the, by human cunning and the craftiness in, in deceitful schemes. Go into any Christian bookstore, go to, you know, just Google Christian teaching, uh, you know, just watch Christian television, and you see all of this stuff that a good church ought to train you to avoid, to sort out, to see the problems with, to work through so that you are not carried away by any of that. Rather, speaking the truth in love, there's kind of a a summary of the kind of ministry that goes on, whether it's teaching, discipleship, encouragement, rebuking. We're speaking the truth in love and growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by, here's a key word to underline, every joint, every joint with which it is supplied, every person, every family, every group, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now think about that right there and the paradigm that we just built. Pastors as coaches, congregants as ministers, when the congregants minister the way they're called to, the church has all these wonderful things described as it's being strong and mature, built up, and, and, and it's growing, but that's not how most people view the church. Matter of fact, there are search committees right now in churches all over the place uh, that are looking for pastors to do this, right? Not equip them, not train them but to do all this stuff so that the church will grow and be mature and have all this great stuff. When in reality, the the maturity of the church, the the proper functioning of the church comes when every part is doing its work properly. Every component of the church has been adequately trained by the pastor. They need to look for pastors and coaches. Most churches are trying to hire players, not coaches to lead in all of this. Now, it started with this. Go back up to verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, you could tie that and make a line or a bracket all the way down to verse 16 because every part has to be properly working. Now, we only focused on, in teasing out in in this particular passage, the offices, and and for our sake and historically speaking, right, of of the church planters and the pastor teachers, right? The discussion here really doesn't develop into what are some of those, those, those things that God gifts people to do in the working in the church to make it be what he's described it to be. He doesn't get into it here. Paul does get into it elsewhere, but he doesn't give us a lot of help here. But at least we know in this particular text and elsewhere as we'll look that the giftedness that God gives is guaranteed. He is promised to gift every person according to the measure of his grace. He's going to make sure that all that he wants to do to the church, all the good he wants to do to the church, he 
selects people and gives them that enablement and that, 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 that charge and that, that capacity to get that work done in the church. So if you look at a church like ours, Compass Bible Church, we, we know this. Christ loves the church. He loves this particular outpost of the church. He wants to see this church mature and grow up and be all that it's supposed to be. I mean, it's clear you're not looking for a pastoral staff right now. You've got pastors in place that are here to train you and equip you. Uh, and what he wants now is for all this good to happen by seeing every part that he has put in place do its work. And, and the thing is, it's guaranteed that there is enough here to see the church be all it should be. There's enough players for the positions that are required in a church this size to see the church be what he wants it to be. The giftedness, which is a word I like to use, uh, which I haven't heard many people use, it's a word I've kind of coined in the discussion of, of being equipped and trained in the church, is, is how I would like to proceed with the rest of our discussion on giftedness, to think through what exactly we mean by that. And the reason I want to use a weird word for that is because I want to think through when Paul does start speaking about the ways in which people and component parts of the church are being utilized to help the church be what it's supposed to be. I want to think as broadly as it's presented to us uh, in, in the scripture. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, giftedness. Let's, let's, let's elaborate on, on what we mean by that. Giftedness. And for some of you, uh, man, this is old stuff because you've done some form of this in the partners program, have you not? Smile at me if you've done this in the partners program. Yeah, okay. Um, but some of you have not. So let's go through it. Let's talk about this a little bit. Um, what, before we even look at that, let's, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, the, the first observation I want to make before we get into the specifics here of, of how he describes the things that people need to be trained up to do in the church, if you want to put it that way. I want to talk about how he describes these gifts themselves, which unfortunately is seen in, in far too narrow of a sense, and I've made that point a few times, so you've got it. Look at verse 4. Now, there are a variety, and there's our word, charisma, the root of that word, charis, the charis root, grace, gift, right, favor, there are a variety of, of charismas, a variety of, of things that God has done in bestowing on his church the adequate resources in terms of people and what they do uh, to get the job done in the church, uh, but there's only one spirit. I mean, there's something very helpful in this text going on because we're about to get a chapter, to chapter 13, and chapter 13 is all about the kind of love that's to drive this to bring us together, not split us apart. So he speaks to that already, but the same spirit. Maybe different gifts, same spirit. Different charisma, same spirit. Verse 5, there are a variety of... Now, here's the word we saw over there in, in uh, Ephesians 4 as it relates to the, to, to the work that they're doing. This is the word diakona. Okay? Now, now, that's the word translated here, service. There are a variety of, 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 of service. Now, think, think that through for a second. The first time we see a group of people in the early church doing the diakona, where they're even called diakonos, the deacons, uh, is when they're serving tables in Acts 6. Now, if you think about gift as I have a special endowment of some kind, and it's some special ability that I have, look at the first group of people that are designated diakonos in the New Testament. What are they doing? You know the role of Stephen and the rest of the guys? What were they doing? Serving tables. Wow. Where did you go to school to learn to do that, right? That's not a special ability. Okay? That's the first thing I want to do is to try and get our minds out of this sense of someone who's got this special ability to do something you know, special in the church. I mean, the first description we have of those who are called to serve the church are doing such mundane things. They're just serving the, the Hellenistic Jews in the, in the church, uh, serving them dinner. 
taking care of, of the widows, very simple, mundane tasks. And he says there's a variety of those tasks, a variety of those ways to serve, but the same Lord. Verse 6, there are a variety of, and translated activities, in ergama, in ergama. What English word does that sound like? In ergama, energy, okay? We get the word in English, energy, from the, from the Greek word, in ergama. And in ergama here, it's translated what? Activities. Uh, some translations translate it workings. Uh, it is it, something that requires energy. It's something that requires some work, labor. And, and here in the text, if you look at this, we've built this parallel structure here, this parallelism. Uh, there's a variety of, of charismas, gifts. You may think of one thing there, but broaden it. A variety of diakona, ways to serve, and a variety of things to do that are work, activities. But same God who empowers them all in everyone, empowers them all. What? To serve a table? To work on something? Right? To, 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 to have some uh, ability to do something? Yeah, all of those are true, but look how broad that is. We like to think about what the church is called to do in terms of what is your gift but in reality, we need to think, of, you know, not defining that so narrowly. I like to call it, what is your ministry? What is the thing that you do? Even that, that sounds so, you know, so, so simple and mundane. It's a lame way to say it, it sounds like. But that, that's a biblical way to think about it. What are, you, what are you doing in the church? Even if you say that, you're speaking really in the terms of the New Testament. What is the thing you work at in the church? What is the thing you do to serve in the church? What is the thing that you're gifted to do in the church? You can use all of those words because they all really mean the same thing. The church now is to equip you to do that and to do it well, to do it effectively, to direct you, to slot you, to give you opportunities, to give you some horizon, some field to do those in. But those are the things that we ought to uh, recognize. A couple observations here. There are several words used to describe this topic of giftedness or ministries or service. And all of those words should help us recognize that uh, we're not going to go to these lists and just try and find one of them and say, well, that's mine, which is how most churches teach people to go about figuring out what they're supposed to do in the church. Now, uh, let's look at the charts and make this simple observation. No two lists are the same. There are six different lists of gifts in the New Testament. I've taken Corinth and I've synthesized that because there are three different lists in 1 Corinthians. And, and I put them all together here in the first column. Now, Corinth, obviously, was one church in the Orange County of the ancient world. Uh, the letter was written in 54-55 A.D. It's the fourth letter of 27 chronologically on, on, the, on the list, if you're going to lay them out in chronology. Uh, I said 1 Corinthians 12 because all the three lists you'll find are in and around that text, and they all are here listed. Apostles, prophets, teachers, miracle workers, healers, helpers, administrators, tongue speaker, interpreters of tongues, wisdom, knowledge, faith, trust, confidence. We'll group those together. They seem, I mean, that's the idea. They're distinguishing uh, of spirits or discernment. Okay, That's what's listed there. Now, Paul writes to Rome later, not much later, but a couple of years down the road. It's the 27th or the seventh of 27 letters. And, and he only lists a few prophets, teachers, servants, leaders, exhorters, those who contribute to needs, and those doing acts of mercy. Ephesus, and you see et el after that, uh, and you're thinking, well, what do, what do you mean by that? When, when Ephesus was written, uh, we're assuming it was a circular letter. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I'm sure you could go back and hear me teach on the first two verses of Ephesians. It's probably on the focal point site to talk about the reasons that that uh, book was uh, a circulating letter. So when Paul wrote that, the assumption is he'd spent three years there, remember, pastoring, and not a single uh, you know, list of greetings with any proper names. Now think that through. We got Romans that he'd never been to, and we tried to preach through the 16th chapter, which was excruciatingly hard, uh, right? all those names, and he'd never even been there. 
Paul's been in Ephesus for three years, uh, and he refrains from any of that kind of thing. What's going on there? Well, we're going to a much broader audience, and that's one reason. There's lots of reasons. Ephesus is a circulating letter. So Ephesus and a variety of other churches in Asia Minor that were to get this, when he talks about gifts, which we just read, he only itemizes four, apostles, prophets, the pastor, teachers, and the evangelists. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.10 and 11, and he speaks of gifts, and, and it's, that's about 68. That's one of the later letters. Uh, we're getting near the end of the New Testament there, 16th of 27. He only gives us two, serving and speaking. Now, you notice here that I have grayed out this line, uh, serving. And I, if, you're, if the copier was working when you got yours printed, uh, you should see that that one's a little bit gray and speaking is a little bit gray. See that? Because I think the argument can be made, and I'm not here to exegete that particular text, but I mean, these are clearly categories of, of, of things that are done in the church. I mean, your gift may include, or your position may include, your ministry may include speaking, and your ministry may be that you don't speak. You serve in some way. Maybe like Stephen, you're, you're, you're serving tables, but it's not a teaching post. It's not a counseling post. It's not a discipling post with your mouth. Uh, so he just gives us serving and speaking, or speaking and serving, serving and speaking. If you look across there, uh, I also put servants of, of Romans 12 in that because there couldn't be a broader way to discuss ministry in the church than to say serving. And the way it's translated in, in 1 Corinthians 12, helpers, I mean, it couldn't be more broad than that. Okay? So we know this, that we've got these lists, and these lists are all different, and two of them seem like umbrella categories that you could tease out of this. So if you take those out and say, well, all the rest could fit under the umbrella of serving and speaking, right? That leaves us with 16 different gifts that are listed in the New Testament. And in reality, when he talks about it, then you'd have to say in 1 Peter 4, he doesn't even give us any specifics other than it could be a speaking gift. It could be a serving gift. Now look through that. No, no two are alike. If I'm in Rome or in Asia Minor, I didn't get the same list they got in Corinth. A couple observations. I, I've made this uh, in the partner's manual, but it's good to, to, to jot it down now. The, spe- the more specific the audience, the more specific the list. Right? When Peter writes to the scattered Christians in Asia Minor, um, the many churches, he, he simply gives us categories. Ephesus, the circulating letter, right, gives us a, a little bit more, but not much. Rome, big church, Paul hadn't been there. He gives a number of, of, of them, but not as many as Corinth, where he's writing back to answer specific questions and deal with the ministry. Many of the problems in the ministry there, he gets very specific about the list. If no two lists are alike, okay, and the more specific the, li- the, the audience, the more specific the list, and if by the time Peter's writing in this, he's just giving us broad categories, then the big mistake I think we make in modern Christianity is to say, what's your gift? hand you a list of 16 things or some people 18 things and say, what's your gift? Figure out what it is. We even give you tests, right? Smile at me if you took a a gift test, right? You've taken those before? You got to take all these questions, figure out what your gift is, right? That I'm just saying is just the, it's the wrong approach in my humble opinion, right? That's just the wrong approach to this, right? That is not what I think Paul, Peter, or anybody else intended for us to do with them talking to specific churches about the specific things there, and then going on and just speaking in generalities later as he talks to broader and broader audiences. I, I think we, we need to give up looking for uh, the specific gift, particularly if we define it narrowly as something God has endowed me to do. Because in reality, it could be the Hellenistic Jews need their dinner served, right? Because they're frail and, 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 and they can't get up. They need somebody to do that in the church. Uh, and you could do that, Stephen. So there's a need. There's a way to serve. You can do that and you can lead that. You can organize that. You can take care of that problem. And that becomes your 
ministry, your diakona, right? That becomes the thing you work at, your ergama. That becomes the thing that God allows you to do to be a blessing to the church. His favor to the church is bestowed on them through you, right? That is the picture of spiritual gifts, which really brings us a whole different approach to how to go about figuring out what my role is in the church. So what am I saying? Number four, the, the lists are examples. That's all I'm saying. The lists are examples, and we need to recognize that and not start thinking, well, if, I don't, if, I, if there was a need and I had a, an aptitude to work on the, the soundboard uh, or to work in tech somewhere in the church, well, I, I, you know, I, guess it's, I guess I'm going to say I got the gift of helps uh, to make me feel like I'm, I'm somehow biblical in this. You, recognize, you see the problem here? Right? You don't have to come up uh, with some justification to give dignity to your service to the church by finding a connection to, to this. The question needs to be, are you helping the church be what it's supposed to be? Not, have I found something I can slot my skill under? Did you notice music's not in here anywhere? Have you noticed that? How much of, the, how much of a big part of the church is that? A, a big part. How much of that was intended? We got 150 psalms showing us how it's done in the Old Testament, brought right into the New Testament in terms of how they worshipped in the New Testament. You mean to tell me that, that when they sat around in the early church as it grew, think about it, to 5,000 on the Temple Mount, we didn't want to have somebody who was good at leading in some singing to do this? Yeah, it is. Why isn't it listed? Because these are just examples, right? This is not meant to be a definitive list of gifts, and that's important. So each church's ministry list is going to vary. Think about when Paul tells Timothy to take care of the widows. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. What if you're a church plant and everybody in your church is, you know, from 18 years old to 35 years old and nobody's lost their spouse and no one, I mean, you don't even have the age requirement that's laid out there in in 1 Timothy 5. You're not going to have that ministry then. Is God saying, wow, you know, I, I, I've gifted the church for this, but they don't have any people to, to meet? See what I'm saying? Every church is different. Small churches, far different needs than big churches. And the big churches have a lot more needs and a longer list of ministries to be manned and to be attended to than, uh, than small churches. Not all listed ministries are, will exist here, okay? Even in our church. Um, our church is a bigger church, obviously, so... Most of the things we think about that go on in church, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be needing that done here. Uh, but the obvious distinction that needs to be made has to do with the miraculous gifts. And I, I didn't even want to get into this, but I thought I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, during a discussion about this. So uh, that's why I gave you that chart there at the bottom. So let's think this through for just a second. Clearly, as you read through the list, and I know there's 18 numbers there, but if you look, there's no number. What were the grade ones? There's no number six and number 14, and you understand why, right? Because serving and speaking are categories, not to mention that a lot of these overlap. So if you're going to list the 18 itemized gifts, 16 of them here, but keeping the same numbers, you can say, well, some of these are clearly miraculous. For instance, the one that's described in 1 Corinthians 12 is miracle workers. Wow, that, that clearly is a miracle gift, right? It's a supernatural gift. Apostles and prophets... As we uh, started to talk, at least on the apostolic side, from 2 Corinthians 12, 12, clearly there's miraculous gifts associated with that. 
healers, if they can truly heal people that are physically sick, right? Miraculously, the way it's described in the book of Acts, that's miraculous. Tongue speakers, and, my, and I have no time to get into all that tonight. I can. I'm happy to. I have for weeks. It's all on the, on the website if you want to get it. But uh, clearly, this was a miraculous gift, a sign gift. It's called a sign gift to be able to do something with my mouth in terms of speaking a language that I didn't study or learn, uh, and, and then to be able to, for those that don't know that, be able to miraculously translate that. Both of those are miraculous gifts. They're sign gifts that can be authenticated by just the people that are there who know the language. Those fall into that category. It's one, two, three, four, five, six of those. If we just take the examples, were there other miraculous gifts? Probably were, because these are just examples. And then we've got in the example list of the 16 I've listed here, teachers, administrators, encouragers, givers, those who show mercy, evangelists, wisdom, knowledge, all of those clearly don't break natural law. Okay? So if I look at those, I need to start saying, well, wait a minute, um, where are the miracle working gifts in this church? Where are the tongue speakers in this church? Where are the people that can uh, heal in this church? Where are the people that authenticate their sermons by doing miraculous gifts like the apostles did? Okay? Uh, that's why I, I gave you this middle chart, just to give you a little sense of the layout of this. And some of you have heard me on this before, but track with me here. God's miraculous intervention. Much like the word apostle, we use the word miraculous in two different ways. Okay? We use it with a big M and a small M. That's the way I like to say a technical sense and a non-technical sense. When we say something was miraculous, what we mean is God intervened. That's why if you've heard me teach on this before, I talk about a GT, right? Either a GT2 or a GT1. GT stands for it's a God thing. It's clearly God. God is involved. God did something. He either did it in the first order of the way God does things in breaking natural law, or he did it in the second order of the way God does things, and that is working within the laws of nature, providentially doing something. But what makes it miraculous is it's, a, it, it's, it's so providential. God has answered our prayers specifically by doing what we needed done in such a way it's clearly God. God did it, okay? He either did it by breaking natural law, or he did it by working within providence, okay? If you study the Bible from beginning to end, and you say every time that we see something as a, as, in the narratives of, of Scripture clearly presented as God doing something, where it is a clear God thing, a miraculous event, right? How many of those are capital M's and how many of those are small M's? God gets all the credit, but in one case, the class A God things, where he does them by breaking natural law, super spectacular, and the God thing too, where he doesn't suspend natural law, but gets the job done within the laws of nature. If we're going to divide those up, what does it look like? Well, first of all, in building this chart, I've given you three categories. Category one, the coming of the Torah, the coming of the law, Moses and Joshua's era. Remember the whole thing about the Exodus was that God, he clearly could have changed Pharaoh's heart. But the Bible even says he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you remember that? Does that bother you sometimes? Why? So that he could display his mighty power, the Bible says. What for? Well, not just it's just it's not coming out of the sky. He's taking Moses with a staff and using this person to do miraculous events so that when he could go out in the desert and start writing, he would write the first five books of the Bible that would be the core of, of the Old Testament revelation from God to man. Right? We had him doing miraculous events and his predecessor and his his um, his his uh, protege Joshua doing these miraculous events in that generation uh, to end up establishing the veracity of the revelation from God to man. Now, if you look in that era, how many times did we have a GT one, a God thing, a miraculous event where it was of the first order? It was it was a suspension of natural law. Okay, jot this number down. There were ten of them. You can do this count on your own. 
But go back in the story and look. I mean, you can start with Exodus chapter 12 and you can move. Well, actually, you can start before that because we got the 10 plagues. You can start in Exodus chapter 4 and, and move on all the way through Deuteronomy 31 and, and look for things where God suspended natural law. How many times does that take place? 10. Oh, oh, and by the way, you can think about these. Even the 10 plagues weren't all the suspension of natural law, right? Some were providential. That's why 33, we've got several that, that are not supernatural, but they were clearly God things. When Moses says, you're going to get judged if you don't let my people go, it, that's what God says, and you say no, now we're going to have uh, whatever, the locusts, let's say, right? Or the gnats, or whatever, you can pick one. Now, that's, that's happened before. It happened in Nahum's day. It happened in the middle monarchy of Israel. I mean, that wasn't supernatural because it, it does happen. It happened in a huge way. Well, that, some, that could happen. It's conceivable. It's just the timing of it all was clearly a God thing. We have 33 things that everybody attributes in the narrative of the, of the Pentateuch to God, but they don't suspend natural law, right? Sun standing still clearly suspends natural law, right? You see what I'm saying? Uh, even the Koran, Korah's rebellion, can there be earthquakes that swallow up a big set of the desert, you know, a big swath of the desert and people fall into a pit? Could that happen? Sure, right? And it just happened to happen when a bunch of rebellious guys were standing there, right? That's a God thing. Right? And that, that's a God thing. But, it's, but it doesn't suspend natural law. It's a God thing. Working within time and space, but using you know, plate tectonics and seismic activity to get the job done. Coming of the apostles, I'm sorry, of the prophets, the classic period of the prophets. We had all these writing prophets come along. The two big characters, even in the narrative, were Elisha and Elijah. Get them in the right order. Elijah and Elisha. And around those Guys, we had the classical period of the prophets. You know, we had the school of the prophets. We had this band of guys that were to be listened to as authoritatively writing from God. And much like 2 Corinthians 12, 12, they had the ability to do miraculous events. How many times was natural law suspended? 21. That was even more. It seems pretty spectacular what was going on in the Exodus. But it was even more spectacular when God now starts writing the rest of the Old Testament through the, through the, the, the pen of the uh, prophets. How many GT2s? Clearly a God thing, but didn't suspend natural law. 45. Okay. It's a lot. Christ comes along. And the apostles, we've got another generation where miraculous events are taking place. How many times did natural law get suspended? Lazarus comes back from the dead. GT1. Doesn't happen, right? That's the time. It's not a timing matter. If it happens at all, it's a big deal. It's a God thing. Law was suspended to make that thing happen. Um, Oh, I'll give you one. Think about the uh, releases from prison in the book of Acts. Okay? One of them is described as a miraculous event, as a GT1 miraculous event. In other words, there was the opening of the doors, and it even says it, by themselves. Remember that? And out they come. Miraculous event. Released from prison. Your man was in prison. God got him out. Doors opened by themselves, and, and God let him go. Philippian jailer. God's man's in jail there now. Right? Paul and Silas. And they're going to get out of prison too. How does that happen though? Earthquake right? How does it, well, what was, we had pressure, we had faults, you know, erupting, all that happens. It just happened in the right place at the right time to do the right things to get them out of prison. And the Philippian jailer wanted to kill himself over the deal because they all got out. Now he was just thinking, well, what a terrible event that happened here. The earthquake just happened to be here at this time and these prisoners, but this was a God thing. And Paul says later, as he writes to Timothy, I was in prison, but God delivered me out of that. He gives God credit for that. But one happened within the laws of nature, and one happened outside the laws of nature. Okay? 
How many suspensions of natural law took place during the life of Christ and the apostles as recorded in, in the New Testament? 46. Look at it ramping up here. And what may be interesting now, watch the inversion. When it comes to GT2s, we had less of those, 20 of them, that happened within the laws of nature. Now, the first column, if you add them up, 10, 21, 46. That's 77. 77 GT1s in three generations, basically. Moses and Joshua, let's call that one. Elijah and Elisha, I guess you'd call it two, but it's one back-to-back set of, of, of lives. Christ and the apostles, there's another. We have three periods. Now think about this. How far back do we have? I mean, let's just start with Moses. Right? That was 2,000 years ago to Christ, 1,400 years back to Moses from the time of Christ. So 3,400 years of biblical history, if you just start with Moses, right? how many total GT1s do we have in the Bible? This is an important fact here. Okay? Out of the 86 total GT1s recorded in the Bible, 77 of them took place here in three rashes, three different periods of time. Joshua and Moses, Elisha and Elijah, the apostles and Christ. Okay? What that tells you, yeah, well, I say 1,500 years. I'm not counting, obviously, 2,000 years now. The Bible's covering 1,500 years. The first generation to 90 AD, 95 AD, uh, back to 1445 BC. So there's 1,500 years. Think about that. When people, especially Charismatics and Pentecostals, want to go to the Bible, like Wimber said, I just want to do the Bible stuff. If you want to do the Bible stuff, Here's what you need to understand. The miraculous stuff didn't happen very often, okay? Were there a few between the, ra- the three rashes? Yeah, there were a few, right? But most of them took place clustered in three periods of time. And one of those clusters was in the New Testament. Even if you look back to the page one chart at the timing, right? We don't even have a discussion of the miraculous outside of the, f- the first letter that, dis- that described ministry gifts, right? The further we got moving this way, even though we talked about apostles and prophets, Right? We weren't talking about their miraculous abilities anymore. We weren't talking about the endowment that God gave them to, to suspend natural law. So here's what I'm saying. Just knowing that scope of biblical history and the miraculous events of GT1s, I, I've got to say, I, I really wouldn't expect GT1s to be going on in the present era, right? unless, of course, we were writing Scripture, which we're not. As a matter of fact, here's what the Bible predicts. The next rash of truly miraculous events takes place with the coming of the Antichrist, right? So if Benny Hinn actually does start raising people from the dead, we got another problem with our neighbor. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Nobody caught that? That was kind of funny, I thought. Is that too edgy for you to laugh at? Uh, the next rash of real miraculous events, signs and wonders, right? They're false, not because they're tricks. They're false because they're pointing people to the beast and the Antichrist but they're performed at the hands of the enemy of God. And the point is, we don't expect them because they had a clear purpose, and the purpose was to authenticate the coming of written revelation. And according to Jude now, we have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Even with the capstone on the New Testament, the book of Revelation, we've got these statements at the end saying, listen, don't add to it, don't subtract from it, you got it. We have a sense that not just the book of Revelation, but God's revelatory work is finished in Christ. Hebrews 1, Revelation 22. And, and, and that gives us a sense that when it comes to expecting the gifts to be exercised in the church, what we're not expecting here is, you know, something in the bulletin that says, you know, looking for a new uh, miracle worker because the old one moved to, you know, Cincinnati, right? Uh, yeah, suspension of natural law. Let me go back to miracles, GT2. 
Here's what people will accuse me of and people like me. Well, you're, you're just saying God doesn't do miracles today. It's not what I said, right? As a matter of fact, GT2s, I believe, take place all the time. God works within providence. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, right? God responds. But it's like if you needed cash. I think of the story, I was reading a book on the founding of uh, Dallas Seminary. You probably heard the story, maybe you haven't. But uh, big need that they had for finances. And they were going to close the school in the early days of the school. They needed, I forget what the number was. Let's just call it $75,000 back in the day. It was a big, big number for a school like that. Let's just call it that. They didn't know what to do, right? Uh, they could have taken their little cash box at the uh, seminary, put it on the president's desk, kneeled down there at the president's you know, uh, chairs, receiving chairs, and prayed for God to fill it. And then every now and then sending one of the professors up to open it up to see if God had filled it. And if he had, that would be a GT1, wouldn't it? But that's not how they expected God to answer their prayers. They prayed and prayed and prayed for that money that they needed or the school was going to close. And when they were praying, there was a knock on the door and a cattleman from Fort Worth came in and said, I just sold my cattle. It was $75,000 and I just thought I should donate it to a Christian organization and gave him the money. Okay? There were real cows, a real cattleman, a real Christian, a real check, real money that had been all providentially planned to come at the right time to answer those praying professors' prayers. Do you see what that is? Did they call it a God thing? Did they call it a miracle? Absolutely. Is that a biblical way to describe it? Sure. And I'm saying, does God do miracles today? Absolutely. And do I believe in my theology that he's doing things within time and space? Yes. But if you need money, if you're out of money, I don't, I don't ask you to take your wallet, put it between your knees, pray, and every now and then look in it and to see if he's filling it, Right? But there may be a knock at your door. There may be, I don't know, uh, maybe uh, the newspapers on your porch with a a want ad for a job. Who knows? You may get a call back from somebody who was going to hire you. You see what I'm saying? And God answers those prayers. God is involved providentially in those things. Which, by the way, because I believe in God's providence in time and space being active and God always responding to our prayers in one way or another, I actually, when my Pentecostal and charismatic friends want to say I'm putting God in a box, it's funny how much more active I believe God is in everything than it seems they are because God seems in their theology to be passive until he does a miraculous event, which is a suspension of natural law in their theology. See what I'm saying? I'm believing that God is at work and working continually. All right, for what it's worth. Some of you have seen that before, maybe not. So let's talk about involvement real quick. If this is the case... The church then, especially the the coaches, should be continually encouraging you to be highly committed and participating because you have a stewardship, according to 1 Peter, and that stewardship is that God wants to use every part in the church, to use the vocabulary of Ephesians 4, to use some kind of, of work through your life, to do some kind of service through your life, to have God favor his church in some way through you so that you're involved in doing something in the church. And you may get tired of it. You may feel harped on. You may feel like we're always pushing you. You know, I've heard people say, why don't you just skip the announcements? It really seems like an intrusion on, on worship, right? Listen, this is part of worship. For us to get up and say, we need a thousand people to do something at an outreach event at the Verizon Amphitheater. Because when we put our hand to the plow and serve, as mundane as it may seem, just like serving tables to the Hellenistic Jews in Acts 6, When you put your hand to the plow, doing something here in the church and serving the church to do that work, see, that is 
That is what the Bible refers to when it talks about gifts, service, work. And in that, we recognize that if the church is going to train and guide and direct you in being what we are supposed to be, then the pastors must do that. We must continually give you that call and encourage you and summons you and and prod you to be involved. Every part needs to do its every part needs to do its work. So we should encourage HCP, you know, is highly committed participants, right? That's our verbiage around here. Each church should encourage highly committed participants. And that should be the norm. As a matter of fact, when we wrote up, you know, kind of the, the, the formalized focus of this church, we wanted to put that in our, in our founding values because we recognize that when the church gets big, which we in faith trusted God would do with this church to, to have an impact on South Orange County, we recognize it's easy for big churches to have about, you know, 80% of the people just kind of sit on the sidelines and do, do nothing. Now, our church is way above the national average, and I think we got about half of our church involved in doing stuff, right, doing the work of ministry. Uh, but it would be great if it were the way it ought to be, and that is we had 100% participation with all of the converted people in our church. And also, opportunities should abound. The pastors should not be, and the leaders should not be doing all the work and not giving you opportunities to do it. We shouldn't be doing all the evangelism and not, you, not giving you opportunities to do it. We shouldn't be doing all the service, all the counseling, all the discipling, all the training, everything. We, we shouldn't be doing all of that. There should be plenty of opportunities for you to get involved. And then a segment of our programming, just speaking practically now, should involve preparation, training. That's why we do this meeting here. I don't need to do this for my benefit, right? Why are we teaching systematically through the, you know, nine divisions of theology? Because if you serve in some significant capacity in our church in in dispensing biblical truth, you need to think like a systematic theologian at some point to make sure that what you teach is accurate and biblical and stays within the parameters of evangelical theology. So that's one of the reasons we do this training, not to mention a a whole slew of other programming uh, opportunities here in our church that are to help you do a better job serving and doing the ministry of the church. You are the ministers. And some people say, ah, it feels like school, you know. It should, right? This, this is your Bible school so that you can be adequately at- equipped to do the work of ministry. All right, let's talk about discipline. I know you wanted to talk about church discipline, so let's talk about that. I gave you three inches to talk about church discipline. Those charts killed me. I almost went to four pages tonight, but I didn't. Hey, you would agree with this, wouldn't you? God wants holy Christians. Um, it's funny, as I prepared this today, I thought, you know, this isn't a given anymore in the modern evangelical church. But let me call your attention to a series of passages up on the screen here. First Peter chapter 4, First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Look carefully at this text on the screen. As obedient children, just start, start right there. God wants his kids to be obedient. Obey what? Right? Well, he gave us a list of commands. What's the Great Commission say? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We are supposed to be all about individuals in the church being obedient. And to be more specific, and to contrast it with what we don't want you to be, we want you to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The way you lived as a non-Christian, we don't want you to live that way anymore. When we speak of the passions of you doing what you wanted to do, right? We don't do what feels good. We don't do what we, whatever we feel motivated and led to do. Right? We're supposed to live differently at this point, obedient to the principles and precepts of God's word. But as he who called you is holy, now remember the word hagios, it means set apart, different, or not like the rest. As the one who called you is holy, he's different, definitely than the rest of, of, of mankind and everything else. So you also be holy in all of your conduct. Right? This is not just abstract theology. This is a change in the way I live. 
my conduct. Since it is written, now he quotes Leviticus 11, which, by the way, I just thought I'd list them out because it's several passages. He quotes this twice in Hebrews 11, that phrase. Once in, in Hebrew, in, I'm sorry, Leviticus 11. Twice in Leviticus 11. Once in Leviticus 19 and once in Leviticus 20. Just that one phrase that he quotes here. You shall be holy for I am holy. Right? Be holy because I'm holy. I'm set apart. I'm not like the rest of the world. You shouldn't be like the rest of the world. This is New Testament truth now. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You're here on earth. The earth is not your home. Don't fit in down here. Don't be like everybody else. Don't be like the old you because the one you pray to is your father and your savior and the one to whom you're reconciled to, he is also your judge and one day will evaluate your life. And that ought to put some fear into this relationship, not of punishment, right? But of the kind of, of, and and I talked about Bunyan's book on fear. That was at a men's conference, I think. So let me say this now. If you haven't read uh, John Bunyan's book on the fear of God, it's probably 99 cents on Kindle, right? You can, you can read this on your computer for a buck. Uh, it is a helpful book, though it's a bit dated, obviously. John Bunyan was quite some time ago. He's the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, you remember. Uh, this book on fear is one of the best out there because not many people are writing on this these days. talks about two kinds of fear. There's a kind of fear that love drives out, right? Perfect love drives out fear. What kind of fear? A kind of fear is the context of 1 John says there that involves the punishment of God, the wrath of God. We don't have that fear anymore, right? But like a child who knows he won't be killed by his father, right? Every good relationship with a disciplinarian is going to involve, the child is going to have a a kind of of, of familial fear, a family fear, a child's fear for his father, a kind of proper fear about being accountable and exposed to a dad who's going to call him to account. And that's all about behavior, Christian conduct. As obedient children, don't be conformed to your passions of your former ignorance. He who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, be holy as I am holy. Since you call on Father, one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, your deeds matter. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Just even that simple concept is being disregarded by a lot of people who are using good theology to turn on its head clear statements of scripture and make you think you won't be evaluated. Uh, there's nothing to worry about. Uh, you know, grace covers it all. So it doesn't really matter what you do. It does matter. And God calls you to obedient conduct. Okay. And I couldn't just leave it with one. So let me give you a few more. He sends out his apostles and he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and trust in my grace and know it doesn't matter because I see you as holy and live, you know, just, uh, just, I don't know if you want to love me by your good behavior. That's great. No. You better be as innocent as doves. You got to be shrewd. You got to be wise, but you better be innocent. You better be clean. John 17, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, John 17 says, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart. The word hagios, it's translated holy, is this word, hagios, translated sanctify as a verb here, not, not as a noun. Uh, sanctify them, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. They need to be in your word. They need to be living differently. Speaking of that, you know this text, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Now, you could not do that. This has nothing to do with justification. This has to do with sanctification. Or there is obviously a command here because I need to do it. Present myself as holy and acceptable to God. 
That's your spiritual worship. And that, as I've explained before, uh, better translated perhaps, it is my spiritual service of worship. I am worshiping God and serving Him properly by presenting my life to Him as holy and acceptable. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be like them. We've seen that theme already in these verses. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, right? Oh, we can't be perfect. Everybody's using the word perfect in the Bible to say, oh, see there, all God's trying to do is tell you you can't do it. He's asking us here to discern the will of God and to do it. The word perfect here is the word teleos. Have I taught on that enough times for you now? You're very capable with that word now, right? Teleos. What does it mean? What do I like to call it? Just right, right? Do the right thing in the right situation of what's called for. When there's something going on there, when there's a joke being told you shouldn't be a part of, do, do the teleos thing. Do the just right thing, right? That's the perfect thing to do. It has nothing to do with, oh, we can't be perfect. Clearly, it just leads me back to the grace of God. I understand we need the grace of God. That's not what's being commanded here. That, that's not what's being commanded here. What's being commanded here is that you present your life as a holy sacrifice and that you discern the will of God and you do it, the stuff that's good, that's acceptable and perfect. Teleos, perfect. Ephesians 4, I could go on all night. Now I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk. That's Paul's way to talk. Peri pareo, that's the, 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 the action, the conduct of your life, like the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous. They've given themselves over, the people you're not supposed to be like, sensuality. And they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. This wasn't just about theology and justification. This was about moral teaching and conduct and living a life that is not about sensuality and, and, and the greedy kind of, of well, I just can't get enough impurity. We're supposed to not live that way anymore. So anyway, what's my point? God wants holy Christians, right? And if he wants holy Christians, this shouldn't be hard to figure out. He would like holy churches. He would like our church to be, the, to be composed of people that are living holy lives. And that makes for a holy church. First Peter chapter 2 puts it this way, verses 9 and, and through 12, speaking corporately here. This is great. If we could read it in the original languages where the second person pronouns are either singular or plural, you'll see we've moved from the individual conduct in this first chapter to the corporate conduct, and you can see this just with the words that are used in verse 9. You're a chosen race. That's a big group. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Holy, that's what I've called you to be. A people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's not just a a, a justification move, right? Being placed into Christ. That's also, obviously, as it relates to our behavior, as he says in verse 12, behold, or uh, beloved, rather, I urge you. That's a strong word. I, I, I beg you as sojourners, right, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Everything around us is going to be designed to get us to live like we used to live. It's going to wage war against your soul, right? The corporate soul of the church. Keep your conduct, you all, all of you, uh, among the Gentiles, honorable. This is a picture of the church now. We've come from the individual holiness of chapter 1 to thinking now about the church as a holy organization, right? That's what we ought to be, not living like the rest of the world, right? We shouldn't be getting divorces like the rest of the world, right? We shouldn't be uh, having our houses foreclosed on like the rest of the world. Uh, We should be keeping our promises. We should not be speaking like the rest of the world. We should be different than the rest of the world. God wants holy churches. We're supposed to be different. Now, follow me on this logic here. Let her see God disciplines Christians, does he not? Do we even need to look at this, Hebrews chapter 12? He, yeah, we do. You, You didn't say it loud enough. Hebrews chapter 12. Once you jot that down, just remember this text. If God wants you holy, how does he accomplish it? Because here's the thing, you're not going to live a holy life. Not perfectly holy. You're going to do sinful things. How does he keep you from chronically sinning? 
well, the Spirit of God is in me. I get that. But even with the Spirit of God, aren't you still stumbling into sin from time to time? Well, sure you are. What does God do when that starts to stick, right? When it becomes that encumbrance. And I didn't even put, well, I got the whole chapter. I didn't give you any verses today. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is Hebrews 12.1, let us lay aside every weight. Don't let anything stick. And the sin that clings so closely need to be holy. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Right? You think it's hard to be holy? Think of Christ, how hard it was for him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Did you hear the backhanded slam there? right? Oh, you think you're struggling to to be holy? I don't see you dying for it. Verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation that is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. For it is, it is for discipline that you have to, to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father doesn't discipline? Well, obviously not written in the 21st century. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline, in which we've all be, uh, participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. Then we left their homes, we went on with life. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For, the, for at the moment, all discipline seems painful. Nobody likes it. Don't like it in the church, don't like it in our lives. Rather, it's, it, uh, rather than pleasant, it's not pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those, not everybody's trained by it, but for those who are trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Do you see the metaphor here is about righteous living? So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. We want discipline. We want healing. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's kind of like James, right? Faith without works is, is dead. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. This is a passage about holiness. It started with it. Whatever starts to cling in your life is sin. You gotta, you gotta get that. You gotta beat that. And God is going to help you like a father by disciplining you in some unpleasant way so that you don't do it anymore. And there, then the exhortation is, then strive for that peace and that holiness. Don't let immorality or greed or anything else trip your Christian life up. God will discipline us when we sin, okay? Letter D, God disciplines churches. God disciplines churches, disciplines churches when they sin. Now, I know we have no time for any study, and I had zero room for a chart. But let me throw a chart up real quick. If you were to take Revelation chapter uh, 2 and 3, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, seven churches. Christ writes these seven postcards out to these seven churches, okay? I'll just give you a part of the chart. Condemnation, criticism, and call. It's silly that sees, I know. But he condemns them, criticizes them, uh, or commends them, criticizes them, and, and calls them to something. Let's just pick five of these. Uh, and I pick five of them on purpose because two of them he didn't criticize. So let's start with Ephesus. You, know, you remember this. What did he commend them for? Hard work and pure doctrine. Good things going on in Ephesus? Absolutely. What did he criticize them for, Bible, uh, you know, uh, Sunday school grads? 
Remember? Ephesus, what was their problem? They had left their, that was it. They left their first love, which, by the way, for all those who don't think deeds are important, was quantified in the call by doing the works they did at first. There were things they did in obedience to Christ that they were no longer doing. That quantified, that equated with, in in God's mind, that you left your first love. You don't love me because look at your life. So what does he call them to? Repent and do the works you did at first. Now here's the threat, just quote unquote, right out of the text. If not, I will remove your lampstand. That's discipline. God looks at us individually and says, if you don't stop doing sinful things, I will bring the paddle out and I will in some way incur unpleasantness in your life. I will bestow that on you. And, and that's going to get you like a dad pulling the belt out in the olden days. They used belt. I know that's a horrible picture. The paddle, right? The picture of discipline, that's supposed to now motivate you to do the right thing. Here God says to an entire church in Ephesus, if you don't return to doing the things that you did at first, If you don't show that you love me, as the Bible says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you don't do that as a church, I will remove your lampstand. Now, remember in chapter one, the lampstands were described as the churches themselves. So what's this? What is he saying? I'm going to do what to the church? Shut it down. That church will no longer exist. Do you think churches that were great churches at one time uh, stopped existing as churches? There are realtors that specialize in selling churches. Think about that. That's like asking, do people die? Yeah, I know a mortician or a guy that runs a cemetery. Yes, churches die. They stop to be church. They cease to be churches. And what's the point? In this text, that's tied to, at least in this text, churches sometimes die because they're being disciplined by God because they're not doing what they're called to do. Pergamum. Smyrna was the second one, by the way. No criticism. Pergamum. Commendation to them, they were enduring opposition. That was the kudo they got from God. The criticism is their doctrinal compromise led some in their church to commit sexual immorality. Okay? So there were people in the church sleeping around, people having someone else's wife. Think that through now. That was going on in the church. Now, I bet some of that's going on in our church, right? And it needs to stop. And if we catch you, right, we're going to discipline you. Why? Because God will discipline us as a church if we don't. Now, the terrible thing about this church is they had theological reasons that made it acceptable in their mind to do their, their stuff. Just like Jude says, there are people that turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. And so it was going on in the church at Pergamum. And because God looked from heaven and saw the church and they were committing acts of, of immorality in the church, what was his call? You better repent. And if not, here's the disciplinarian father now. I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's how it's quoted there in in, uh, Rev 2. And what does that mean? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Doesn't sound good though, right? I don't want it. What does it mean? Does it mean maybe like in Corinth when he says, some among you because you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, some are weak, some are sick, and some have died, right? Some sleep. What's the point? Maybe he's going to go and start killing people off in the church. That's what it sounds like. I'm going to make war with them against the sword of my mouth. He's going to speak the word and they'll cease to exist. Now, I got to interpret. I got to guess at what he means, but it isn't good. And he's going to discipline the entire church over this. Thyatira, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. Commendation. Yeah, there was some. He said, there's some among you spiritually growing and serving. That's great. But just like Pergamum, he describes it differently with a different metaphor. But he says, again, there's doctrinal compromise in this church that is leading some to commit sexual immorality in the church. And that was a problem. And here's how he threatens them. Repent or I will throw her, right, onto a sickbed and great tribulation. So here we've got maybe shut the church down. That was discipline action number one toward Ephesus. Um, Maybe kill off some of the people in the church. 
in, in, in uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, I'm going to make, I'm going to send some illness through the church or something. People are going to be really sick and some kind of, of big tribulation is going to take place in that church. That's all why, because they were sinning and refused to repent. Sardis chapter three, he praises some of them for being uncompromised. You have some among you that have not soiled their garments. They are uncompromised. Criticism was multiple. You're a dying church. You got a reputation. You're alive, but you're not. You're hypocritical and, and people think it's a great church, but it's not a great church. You know, you, you guys act like you're in with me, but you're not. Uh, your works are incomplete. Interesting, too. Again, here, the diagnosis is you're not doing the things I've asked you to do. You do some stuff, but you haven't, your works are incomplete in my sight. So you've got, you got a church. I'm not sure what's happening there, but something's not right. Their love for God, much like uh, Ephesus, was not what it ought to be because they weren't living like they ought to live. Now, here's what he says. Repent or I will come like a thief. Now, again, we've got to interpret these. This is highly, you know, a lot, of, a lot of images here, but I'm not clear on what that happened. But what does a thief do? Steal stuff. Now, here was a church that had, uh, you know, its economy like every other portion of Asia Minor, and uh, maybe God was going to throw these guys into economic uh, trouble. Maybe they're going to lose jobs and foreclose on their houses. I don't know. Bad times are going to happen to the members of this church because their works were incomplete. Laodicea, you know that one if you don't know any of these. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. I skipped Philadelphia because there was no criticism and no threat to them. Smyrna and Philadelphia were the two good churches in this list. Laodicea, though, what's the condemnation or the commendation? Didn't have any. That's the only one of the seven didn't get uh, commended for anything. You know the criticism, one word. What was it? You are lukewarm. Which, again, you've got to, kind of, you've got to interpret. Well, what does it mean? You're not cold. You're not hot. You're not in. You're not out. You're not with me. You're not against me. You're, you're lukewarm. Repent. He calls them all to repent, all five of those churches. Uh, but earlier, before he uses the word repent, he says, if you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Um, what does that mean? I guess we're going to have massive defection and apostasy. You got people playing the church game and he's going to be done with them and he's going to, you know, expel them from the church. Whether it's Ephesus, church gets shut down. Pergamum, people are going to die in the church. Thyatira, people are going to be sick and hurting in the church. Sardis, economic problems for the church. Or Laodicea, the church was going to be split up and people are going to leave because... Uh, they were lukewarm. Either way, these churches as corporate entities were being disciplined by the Lord. Why? Because they weren't holy. If you sin chronically, God wants you holy so much, he'll discipline you. God wants the church holy so much, he'll discipline the entire church. To prevent that, now we won't add a, a B1, but we could, and that would be if you don't want discipline in your life, I guess he said it, whatever's crooked, make it straight. If it's lame, strengthen it and, and, and be stable. To put it in terms of 1 Corinthians, if you would judge yourself, you wouldn't have to be judged by God, right? The church now, if God wants a holy church and he's going to discipline a church that is chronically unholy, then the church can fix the problem itself. It's kind of like being humbled. I talk about that, right? You'd rather humble yourself than God humble you. You can shortcut his humbling work in your life by humbling yourself. And you can stop the discipline of God from coming in your life that when you sin, you discipline yourself and you get on the right track. And as a church... Instead of being shut down, instead of people being knocked off by God, instead of us getting chronically sick and going through tribulation, instead of having our economy get, get busted up, it would be better that we discipline ourselves, right? And the church has a responsibility to engage in church discipline. That's the best setup I can do for the need for church discipline, and I hope you feel it after that. Churches are to discipline its people. Real quickly here, uh, Matthew chapter 18. Turn there, please, with the few minutes we have left. Let's try and untangle this text a little bit. Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. We'll look at those two texts. Give us some example here of how God expects this to work. 
Churches are to discipline its people. Matthew chapter 18. Start in verse 15. There's lots of places we could look and, and several ways that could come to the surface. I think in Galatians 6, 1, for instance, if anyone is caught in a transgression, right? You could stumble upon it. It could be against you, uh, whatever. But it says in this context, if your brother sins against you. So let's say the sin is against you. Uh, somebody in the church sleeps with your wife. I don't know. Let's just be using the sins of, of the churches in, in Rev 2 and 3, right? Go tell him his fault. Now, that's probably a mild way to put it if someone sleeps with your wife in church. But uh, okay, you're, you're going to confront that sin, right? Now, do it just between the two of you, right? You and him alone. Deal with it between you guys. If he listens to you, right? Translation, if he repents, then you've won, you've won your brother. You've gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, right? You better now take one or two others along so that every charge can be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Let's spell this out so far. We're talking about number one. None of this has to happen if there's repentant sin. So we're only talking about unrepentant sin here. And that is there's sin going on in the church where someone isn't repentant. And by repentant, I don't just mean saying they're sorry and then they do it again next weekend. I'm talking about repentance. Real repentance means you sinned okay, you acknowledge it, you confess it, you repent. You may not even have to have another person involved. You, 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 you stop sinning in that regard. Great. Then no discipline is involved here. There may be consequences, but no discipline. Or in that first regard, you're caught in a trespass, Galatians 6.1, or you, the, somebody you've sinned against in your sin. You go, you make that right, then it's, then it's done. Unless it's criminal, then, you know, then there's the courts to deal with. Uh, if you don't, though, the whole point of this is increasing exposure. And again, we're already getting to the uncomfortable part of church discipline. What is church discipline? Church discipline is that your private sin may become an increasingly public matter in our church. You commit your sins in private, right? I'm assuming most of you choose to. Uh, the church is committed to exposing that if you don't stop. And, and it starts with whoever finds out about it first is going to try to confront you. If that doesn't solve it, right, the whole point of the Bible here is increasing exposure. More people are going to find out about it. More people are going to be able to, 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 be able to chime in on this. More people are going to see it for what it is and are going to now together try and get your behavior to, to stop. Keep reading here. If he refuses to listen to the... Did we stop in the middle of verse 17? If he refuses to listen to them, beginning of verse 17, tell it to the church. Did we get there yet? We did, right? If he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be as to you a Gentile and a tax collector, an outsider. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I say to you again, let's keep reading the whole thing, then we'll, get, we'll figure out what that means. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they, then they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Do you see the context, by the way, for that oft misquoted verse? This is not about when you meet someone at Starbucks who's a Christian, go, hey, we're having church, two or three gathered together, which is, I don't even understand, right? Christ, Christ's not there when you're by yourself at Starbucks alone? You know, I don't get it. Uh, this is not a church, this is not a verse for guys that don't like established religion. Uh, this is a verse about church discipline. And, and the loosing and binding was talked about before. The first time Jesus mentioned the church, this is the second time. The first time he did was in Matthew 16, when he says to Peter, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Remember that whole thing? Then he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom, right? Whatever you loose, going to be loose. Whatever you bind is going to be bound. Here now he applies it specifically to church discipline. And what is the point? You create an outsider. Who creates the outsider? The leaders of the church 
right, have to make a decision here about unrepentedness, right, that there's not repentance, an uncontrite heart, and there's a decision to say, we treat this person now like an outsider. We treat this person, here's the way he used it for those Jews, and they got it, a Gentile and a a tax collector. And by the way, telling it to the church, right, I I don't mean is you grab the microphone on a Sunday and say, I got something to say here, right? Fred's sleeping with with Mary. No, tell it to the church. You need to tell it to the leaders of the church. You need to tell it to the, 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 expose the guy to the church. What's the point? The church needs to be holy. If the church is going to be holy, right, the people that should be concerned the most about the holiness of the church should be the pastors of the church. And when that is not dealt with personally and privately or with the small group that you've dealt with it in, then it needs to be told to the leaders of the church. And then the leaders of the church are going to make a decision, just like Peter was going to be the first preaching pastor, the lead pastor, if you will, in Jerusalem. He's now binding and loosening. He and his team, his apostolic team, and, and whatever, he's, whatever he binds and loose, looses, right, is going to be loosed. And, and God says, great. If you let it go, it's forgiven. It's forgiven. That's the word loose, by the way, is the word forgiven. And, and if, it's, if it's not, if there's a problem, then, then if you're going to bind it up, you're going to bind it up. And I will be with you. And if you got two people that are going to come and testify of this unrepentant problem, there I am in the midst. I, the authority of Christ himself is there in that, in that issue. And the leaders of the church then will exclude. That's the last step in the process, the excluding of, of the person from the church. Now, most people go running long before they have to be excluded. Right? Few people are so brazen that they say, no, I don't want to, uh, you know, to repent, but I'm going to stay here. Right? Sometimes that happens. It has happened. We've dealt with that and, and, and perpetually, uh, you know, periodically do. But I want to show you how common this is in the Bible. And I know we're a minute late, but let, just I've got the rest of these on the, on the screen. Romans 16, 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause division, for instance, which is the big theme in the New Testament for sinners that don't repent. Because there's a lot of people justified in their causing divisions in the church, it seems. And they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. There's the picture. There's the exclusion. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their appetites and their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We've got to cut these folks off. We need to avoid these folks. Titus 3, 10 and 11. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, there's that picture of Matthew 18, right? Have nothing more to do with him. You're done with him. Cutting him off. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. He should be condemned just by the definition of what, what it means. I mean, here's a guy who's out there stirring up division in the church, and it shouldn't happen. Oh, and by the way, having nothing more to do with him can't happen, uh, you know, in the church and not online, now that we're all connected online, by the way. Right? Think about that. I need to write an article on that. There's not, there's not much written out there. But when it comes to church discipline and social media, right, you, can't, you can't ever have an issue of exclusion that doesn't involve the church then saying there needs to be exclusion uh, electronically as, as well as personally. Second Thess 3.6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. In that case, they're not willing to work and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. He ends the passage this way. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. And do not regard him as an enemy. That's not the point. The point is we want to discipline him and warn him as, as a brother. We want, we want this to be done. Now, not everyone is shunned or excluded from the congregation as a brother, as an act of, of, of reconciliation. Paul sometimes puts it this way when he talks about others that, that had sinned and clearly were serving their own appetites. He, he uses this phrase. Remember this, turned them over to Satan, right? He uses that on a couple of occasions because in his mind, th- there's, no, there's no redemption in this case. They need to be kicked out. The 
passage I didn't get to, and we're totally over our time right now, was the passage I put on the worksheet, which was, uh, or you wrote down, I hope, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There is a case study in it. When there was sexual immorality in the church, and because of their view on grace, they thought it was a good thing that they had a notorious sinner sitting in the congregation, and Paul said you should have judged him and you should have excluded him from the congregation. More needs to be said on that, but we don't have time tonight. I don't even have time to read you that text, but we'll get to that uh, on another night. We'll have to. Let's pray. God unpleasant stuff here at the end, but important important for us to look at a number of these passages and recognize there's a time for us to break fellowship over uh, unrepentant sin. It can be as, as subtle as idleness. Uh, it can be as irritating as division, and it can be as, as heartbreaking as sexual morality. But either way, if there's not a, a change in behavior, there needs to be a change in their connection to our church. And uh, God, because we care so much about what you would do to us corporately, if we don't Uh, exclude the one in our church who is unrepentant. Uh, We don't want to be shut down. We don't want our lampstand removed. We don't want to be thrown onto a bed of sickness. We don't want you to come to us like a thief. Uh, God, we want you to be our, our advocate and our ally as a corporate entity, not as, our, as a judge to us. So, God, we want to be careful. When we see in our midst sin, uh, we, want to, we want to deal with that. And even as Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, or 1, the whole verse, which we didn't have time to read, uh, we need to gently restore people we catch in sin, uh, watching our own lives and being very careful. But still, God, we need to, we need to address it. And if this is not heeded, then more, more people need to get involved. And if, if it's still not heeded, the church needs to be told and there needs to be a corporate action on part of the church to exclude those folks from the church. God, I know that's tough, but the, the consequences and the ramifications of not doing this are far much more, they're more grave and, and far-reaching and, and painful for us as a, as a church if we don't deal with it. So let us be faithful with these. God, thanks so much for our brief time together to talk about training and discipline. Bless the, the rest of our study. Continue to engage our minds each week as we study these things. In Jesus' name, amen.